I'm guessing we have all heard the words compliance, regulations, PCI DSS, GDPR. But how can we match those words with DevOps? Well, today Mike is here to explain how. Welcome to a new episode of DevSecOps Talks with Andre, Julian, and Mike. Hello. Today we have, we have three of us, but not three you would expect, because Matthias is in his summer cottage. He couldn't join, but instead of Matthias, we have Mike joining us, and uh, as usual, we have Julian. Mike is new to our show, and uh, I would let him to introduce himself. Yeah, great. Perfect. Uh, so, hi everyone. My name is Mike. I'm the CEO, co-founder of a company called Cosly, which is essentially a DevOps database that has version control semantics. Uh, my background is technical, so I spent ten years in oil and gas making uh, weird robots, really. So, uh, drilling tools that you could steer towards um, uh, oil reservoirs, marine seismic acquisition systems, which were just really massive arrays of microphones that you dragged behind a boat so that you could steer that kind of thing it was super fun a lot of low-level stuff in the kernel and device drivers and but i've always been kind of interested in how teams develop software and deliver technology um so like when i was a student i was really kind of taken up by extreme programming so quite into test-driven development ci and the things that ended up being kind of wrapped up and that space we call DevOps um, over time. So after that, I spent five years in a DevOps consulting role, uh, helping a lot of different companies with DevOps and usually places that were more tricky to do DevOps, like um, regulated financial organizations, automotive, safety critical systems, and so on, where you know you had more traceability or compliance needs, security needs. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then, yeah, I've been working on, on Cosly for the last few years now. Right. This is actually where we know each other from, right? So we, we did consulting for the same company. Hmm. But I, I was in Sweden, Mike was in Norway. And uh, you're still in Norway, right, Mike? Yeah, I'm still here in Oslo. Right. So uh, now, geography aside, well, let's let's talk about the tool you are building, because uh, it's a it's kind of an unusual thing. We don't really talk about that too much. I mean, we talk about containers, we talk about security, but we're not always talking about inventory. And I I, I think that's the problem that you're trying to solve, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, this company has gone through a few iterations. Like it, it started, uh, its first name was called Compliance DB, where it's, the whole idea was to be a traceability database for your DevOps pipelines. Mm-hmm. So our first customers were big banks who wanted to have a provable audit trail for change management, uh, but they also wanted to do DevOps. So kind of, we were kind of a technical way to s- solve for change advisory board meetings, release notes, and that kind of thing. Um, so that was like the, the the very first iteration was, can we just get a record of everything that happens in the pipeline and have a provable history for that? 
Um, over time, we came to start to realize, well, it's actually also really nice to close the compliance loop and, and track what's actually running in production. So um, fingerprinting all the, like the, the containers and Lambda functions and so on that were running. Uh, and then, so you could tell if what the pipelines were saying were was actually the same as what was actually running. So you could detect things like um, manual deployments, for example, or um, like a deployment failing and running old unpatched software, these kind of uh, use cases. Mm. Now, um, recently we kind of zoomed out a little bit even further from this and thought, What's quite interesting is that with all this history we're building up, we've actually built something that's kind of like a version control system. It's just like you could, we can navigate that data with like log commands, diff commands. Um, and well, it, we've, we just were missing like the command line client in a sense, the git command line. And we thought, okay, well, that should be quite simple to build as well. And that's kind of the, the, the most recent iteration we're realizing, okay, well, how about we give all this change data back to the, the place where it's actually useful with the command line? And like with this command line, what would people do? Because this is a long OLA. I mean, now our listeners are practitioners and this is a show for practitioners, right? So we're trying to, steer away from the marketing things hmm. where people paint, you know, if you read Amazon announcements, you read an announcement and it feels like it's a unicorn, uh, like, you know, it, it, right there, you have to start using it and everything will be perfect. You open up the console, trying to do something with it, and you realize that, well, you actually have to bring some tape with you because that thing is far from being what it's being sold for. Yeah, I mean, so like, what you would do with a CTO? The basic kind of way of, of navigating this data is just finding out what's in prod. That's like the very mm. first step. Like, uh, okay, maybe developers have got access to kubectl, but actually that's quite rare in companies. Um, maybe they have access to the cloud console. Uh, and if mm. they do, I'm not sure they know how to navigate it to find out what's actually running. Mm. Uh, so, so, like, from your command line saying okay what what's running there and what git commits does that relate to that's kind of like mm -hmm. a, a really common thing um so just getting the like listing what's running in a namespace or in a lambda function or an s3 bucket and then being able to uh get the change history for those things so saying okay well this is what's running in uh, that namespace but how has that namespace changed over time can we get a log of like essentially how that uh, how that those snapshots have changed? So when deployments happen, when scaling events occur, and so on. Right. So, so let me let me try to sum it up. I'm sorry mm -hmm. for interrupting because like imagine I don't have the tool you're building. Uh, my workflow would be imagine I have uh, some fire going on in production. So now what the typical steps are. And uh, you already ahead of me saying like kubectl, for instance, right? So I mm. go to kubectl and see what's there. If it's crashing or not, maybe checking some logs and stuff like that. So, yeah, you actually made a valid point that not everyone might have access to the kubectl production. Then another thing is I would go and check CICD and uh, see if actually something got deployed during the last 24 hours that might 
could have caused that, uh, I, I might not have access to the audit logs. So I might not be able to see if there was something deployed by hand. So that's kind of missing usually, right? Uh, what you are saying is that you could give me a tool that would just collect all of that info and connect. And most importantly, it will also connect the, the container IDs, which are not necessarily Git commits, to the actual Git commits. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's more than that. So like that, that, that second step where you said, I would go and look in CICD. Imagine a situation where you have 30 microservices, like figuring out, like going through all those different repos, through the different pipelines, like just like the navigating to find out what, what the pipelines have done is actually a bit of a pain. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the, the situation as well, that's, you get an idea of what when pipelines run, but you don't really know from that exactly what they've done to production. So actually having a log of how production changes is, is extremely powerful. Right. It's like okay. Yeah, go ahead, Drew. It's like an audit log of all production event. Exactly, but because we also gather information in your pipelines, you can tie that through like deployment events, testing, security scans, back to the Git commit and the, the build provenance. Um, so it, it's just, it's more of a, it's a traceability tool. It just happens to feel like a version control system. So like, another uh, kind of interesting use case is what's the difference between staging and prod? Hmm. That's like, it should be super easy to find that out. But actually the reality is really hard. Like you'd have to like do a kubectl command here, do a kubectl command there. Like look at all the different images. Are they on the same digest or not? It's like that shouldn't be that hard. That's a that's a valid use case if you ask me. I mean, it would be handy to have something like that. Is anyone else doing something like what you're doing? You shouldn't be like the, the most clever person on the planet, right? There might be some other companies figuring that out. Well, I think that like the, the way we've tried to solve this in the past is through GitOps, right? GitOps mm -hmm. is supposed to help us turn all of that world of the dynamic changing world into code that we can navigate. So we can, some people do GitOps with different branches for different mm -hmm. uh, environments, then you can just diff the branch perhaps. Um, then, or you could diff directories inside your one branch, that would work too. But I think that still misses like the important part, which is like what we've tried to do as developers or as engineers over the last 20 years is put more and more into the version control system. We call it GitOps now, but first it was we put the build information into um, into Git. Then we put the CI pipeline into Git. So we have the pipelines as code. Now we have configuration as code because we'd like to be able to have reproducible environments. And then we put the tests as code and secure. We've, we like, put everything in code. But that's a static view of the world. What actually happens is a dynamic world after the fact. So I might make a commit to change, to bump a, an image version and an environment in a Git repo. But when that commit gets pushed and when it actually gets applied is a completely disconnected from yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. I saw that like people doing something, push, pushing to death, saying like, yeah, problem solved, but then they never promote to production and then the change sits in death forever. Or yeah. 
the infrastructure as code, like you, you commit, let's say you have an automated pipeline to auto automatically apply and you did the plan and everything, but what happened when it goes wrong? <laughs> How yeah. do you that? It, it's always a race against time and it's usually not with the proper tooling. I'll be curious if you could use that to detect configuration diff. In some way you can, right? Like, but Yeah. And actually, this is one of the, the interesting use cases I've been talking to a lot of people about is like, what are the things that commonly go wrong when you're debugging environments? And the biggest one that keeps coming back is you're debugging the wrong thing. You, what you mm -hmm. think is running isn't actually what's running. Like a deployment has failed or there's an, like an image back off. Uh, pull you can't pull the image or mm. for some reason it's different I, I, I came across this really interesting case um, where a, a company was doing uh, blue green deployments and like they were basically regenerating their entire infrastructure on like every three weeks to ca to make sure that their environments didn't drift so they they brought up the new environment they started putting traffic to it it was failing so they went back to the old one, but they couldn't see what was wrong. And this engineer had spent all evening like mm. trying to figure it out. And obviously he didn't remember that he made a manual deployment to the other environment through, like two or three weeks ago that was never reflected in the, the Git changes. And, you know, it's if you could just... by karma. That's karma. Yeah, exactly. Right there. But, <laughs> I mean, but it, it's funny, though, that like these tools that we need for code really what we need for for infrastructure too def and log and all of that stuff it's, it, it's we need that mm. yeah it's, it's uh, an interesting, interesting train of thoughts yeah i mean i'm i'm like i'm the biggest fan of GitOps in the world we we have everything as code in our system but i'm just saying that that's like putting everything into a static world to git doesn't get away from the fact that you still need to know what's happening in the dynamic world and so t tell us a bit about your, your your journey and the stories that you think, like wh where, where it went well, where it went wrong. Uh, hmm. Well, I think like we're, we're, we're super happy with where we're at now, but my goodness, I've made some, <laughs> some, uh, some silly technical decisions along the way. Like I started this as the, like, as the only technical, like it was the two of us started the business and one of us was technical and that was me. Mm. Um, and I kind of thought, like, I had the idea actually for for this company coming back from doing a consulting gig uh, for a bank in Australia, and I saw all the kind of ceremony and like fanfare that it, it took to get a release out the door, and it was mostly information that they already had in their, their DevOps tools, like what commits are part of this release, how they've been tested, what security scans have been done, who's approved what, all that stuff they already knew, but they had to fill it out in different systems and SharePoints and so on to be able to get the release out. So, ah, then we just need to gather this and then we've solved that problem. I thought, okay, well, what's the best place to store this data? And like, as a, I, I did a lot of Git training, a big fan of Git, I thought, Git's a brilliant place to store all of this information because you have a provable Merkle tree. You've got like an append-only journal, essentially. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, that gives you a lot of compliance and audit guarantees as well. If we if we have like if we don't allow history to rewrite, we use Git as a 
database, then we have this um, kind of kind of like a, a centralized blockchain, which would be perfect. Yeah. And it kind of works until you get to lots and lots of data. And then, you know, it gets slower and slower and slower. And like after it gets slow, like some of the things that you kind of depended on, like being able to look at the history of a file, which shouldn't doesn't sound like such a hard thing because you've got version control, but gets super slow. Like if you wanted to get the history of a file and Git, you actually have to walk the entire commit history. And when you want to do that, if you have to do that a thousand times to display a page in your website, uh, eventually you end up uh, with unhappy customers. Yeah. So we we kind of had to like rethink the like the the data layer from the ground up. Uh, so that was like the the biggest mistake. It was quite an expensive GitHub one. GitHub sold it somehow, right? Well, yeah. Screen. Well, they built their own distributed file system, and then they use um, essentially they put the Git commit history into a SQL database. Mm. Right, um, and that requires an enormous engineering uh, effort. So you just what we did: your repositories and put them into the private repositories of GitHub and use that <laughs> as a data layer. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that that could be one way to solve that problem, but you, you do kind of uh, <laughs> get other problems by taking that approach. Right. Um, but I mean, like a lot, a lot of the the domain model and the approaches were still hmm. valid. So what was quite fun was taking like the the DevOps domain from like our, our for our customers, not a lot changed. But as we migrated from um, from get into a proper document database and built like our an append only journal inside that all they saw was things were getting faster and faster which was uh, quite nice uh, and the technical team did a f- fantastic job with uh, contract testing running both lanes of the code at the same time a lot of like we had a lot of strong guarantees about this and in the end like the customers didn't even notice anything hmm. all right but uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend Git as a database. <laughs> probably not. Well, you could, you could get some investment if you would keep it blockchain more, more often. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not these days. It used to be very not popular. Yeah. Um, right, so you mentioned the website while we're preparing that uh, people might take advantage of. What is that? Well, I mean... Cosly is a is a SaaS product, just like GitHub or Artifactory or many of the DevOps tools. So the idea is that we we act as a DevOps database for you. You send us the data, and you can get it back. You can get it back at the command line, but you can also get it back in the web interface, just like you could with GitHub. So you've been talking about the link, the link to the static website. Ah, That's yeah. So th- this is a uh, this is. Something where, uh, so most of our customers to date have been in the regulated space and we've been helping them write uh, a DevOps uh, software development process. So in these uh, kinds of companies, you tend to be audited by regulators or some third party who expect you to, one, have a written process for how you do things 
that you actually follow that process. And then you have to have the proof that you follow that process when they show up and audit you. So um, DevOps is great for making sure you follow your process because basically you do whatever's in the pipeline over and over again. But a lot of places, they don't have very good documentation for what they should do, like how they do artifact binary provenance, how they test their systems, how they verify the security and so on. So um, we've created an open source software development lifecycle, I guess you could call it, which is you can just fork it online. It's at devopsctl.com. And it's just a static website. You can clone, edit however you like, and then have kind of a passable first uh, kind of basic written process for how you do things. Great. So that might be some use for people who listen. They might just compete and use it as a base if they don't have one, but they suddenly need to have it. And uh, we will put the link to the show notes. So you will find it there. Yeah, I mean, it's quite helpful even if you're not uh, regulated because a lot of companies now have to go towards ISO 27001, SOC 2 compliance, PCI DSS, and then these, like having a written formal process is, is boring work, but it's something you need to do. Right. And what was the first one? What was the first substandard you mentioned? ISO 27001. That's that you follow processes, right? That you have no, processes, no? That's the security, uh, IT security um, mm-hmm. standard. But uh, 9000 is the one that you should just, in general, have management processes. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm yeah. confusing those two. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the, uh, there's a bunch of them. Like there's ISO 26262 for automotive. There's... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of medical device manufacturer. In the end, if you zoom out enough, they all say the same thing. You have to have a process, you have to follow the process, and you need the proof. Uh, yeah, I, I, I worked a little bit with uh, HIPAA compliance, mm. and uh, they have very similar, but you need to have a traceability of who accessed what, when, and why. But there, it's more like a compliance for, not for the deployment process, but for the data management, it um, regulates how personal data be managed. Yeah, and I, th- I think data protection is something that's becoming more and more like of a problem. Like you got GDPR as well over mm. in Europe, where where there's mo- more focus on okay how data gets accessed and how it gets stored and how it gets transmitted. Is it something that uh, you're looking at? I mean, the data man data. It's not the management, but data compliance framework. Is it something that would be applicable for the tool you're building? Not so far, no. Um, Mm. Mostly because, like, where this is important is usually in the business process level rather than at the technical DevOps level. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some technical DevOps aspects to data protection, like who has access to the database. Um, kind of at the kind of the very foundational layer, um, how you manage that access, but it's the higher level is um, usually taken care of by business processes and how the products are working in themselves. Okay. And I have a question regarding like if a company today doesn't have such a process or you know 
they, they don't have a binary provenance. How much work with Cosly would it be to implement? Uh, you could get up and running in 15 minutes, I would say. So, like, and what you have to do is like binary provenance is just the story of where did your where did your binaries come from? So you need to know. Um, so, so in, in Merkley, what we do is we add a command into your pipeline that says uh, report this artifact, and then in that we say this git commit produced this artifact with this um, name or git tag or or, or whatever, um, and it was from this build job. And you could add any other information you like, like the software bill of materials or whatever's interesting beyond that. And we base it on the SHA of the binary you've produced. So it's content addressable evidence. So if you change the binary later, you would know it would have a different SHA and then that evidence wouldn't be valid anymore. So this is actually quite important from a, from a trust perspective. You know, there's a lot of talk around software supply chain just now, um, a lot, lot of work going on in the open source space and in commercial space around it. But in the end, like, what you need to know is that can you provably know what's running and where it came from? Um, and like binary provenance is the, the foundation to that. Can you say this was made here in this build job? All right. So this is how you know where it came from, but how do you know about what's in production? Well, that's where we do monitoring. So we have tools that can either run from the command line or an, as a, you, typically in, as a cron job or a batch job uh, in your CI system or in your Kubernetes cluster uh, or maybe even a, as a Lambda function that continuously runs and pulls what's, what's actually running in production. So for a Kubernetes namespace, for instance, we'd get a list of all the, the pods and the images and the shards of those images. And then we could correlate that with previous builds. And that's how we know if, if even we have binary provenance for everything that's running in production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we do the same thing for S3 buckets or Lambda functions, we just pull them, fingerprint them and say, okay, this is what we found. And inside our system, we can know if that correlates to any other information we have. How do you know if it's been approved to be in production? Is it supposed to be there or not? Well, we have we have approvals in the product as well. So um, there's kind of two levels of approval. Um, one is like an external approval. So a lot of companies they do approvals via their their CI system. They have a a manual step which certain people are allowed to press. And then that's just another piece of binary evidence that we add to the system. We say, okay, in this build job, uh, Andre has approved this binary to go to this environment. Hmm. And then we just register that. And then you can assert that in your pipelines later as well. Uh, and you say, okay, before uh, in the deployment job, you can do you can control the deployment and say, I'm only going to deploy this if it has passed a security scan and Andre has approved it, for hmm. example. Uh, and, and when people just push all the way to production, like it's a hot fix, so screw all the testing. We're going to make problem worse, and we just push to production. What happens next? You get something that shouldn't be there. Mm. How to fix that? Well, I mean, th- th- there's no process that could save you from that kind of thing because, mm. I mean, people are people. In the end, the process is only as good as the people that follow it. Um, yeah, but, but I'm curious about like how you do it in Cosi. Like someone pushed something to production, but it mm-hmm. was intentional. 
how do you import that into the costly state, say, like using Terraform Lingua? So how do you tell costly? Yeah, that student came from pipeline, but it's okay, it's still okay. Ah, uh, yeah. So we have various ways to do this. The most common is like adding it to a, an allow list. So as a policy, we have allow list. So if we find something mm -hmm. in production that hasn't passed or doesn't have the, the evidence that you expect, mm -hmm. then you can just go in and say, okay, well, okay, this this version of Vistio, I, 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 I'm okay with. So Andre approves this. And then anytime that shows up in production, then that's okay. All right. But you can also approve it from the command line as well. Uh, mm. There's many ways to to do this. And in, in, in essence, like in Costly, what we're trying to do is not really enforce any particular workflow or any particular way of working. Um, what we want to do is to be the place where you can store what's going on, and then maybe have a policy engine on top of that that is that fits for you. Oh, oh that's curious. I mean, I, I think it's good that we went into the technical details, understanding how it works, because it's painted by the picture. Mm. Go ahead, Julian, let us talk something. Yeah, um, the, there is a lot of new, uh, you know, software supply chain framework that are popping up, some older than others, some more standardized than others. And th there is almost this competing standard for, you know, what, what would make which kind of information should be stored regarding the dependency and the, the code? Because most of the supply chain attack, they reach to open source and, you know, those kind of things. Like, how, how do you deal with that? Have you heard of the Salsa framework or SPDX or those kind of uh, things? And does the, the tool integrate a little bit with that? Yeah, so exactly that. So... So there is a lot of motion here. You've got in total specs. You've yeah. got um, you've got lots of different ways to like have a software bill of materials. Uh, we don't have an opinion really. If you want to store it, uh, whatever kind of uh, software bill of materials you want to store, that's great for us. Because to be honest with you, I don't think that we've made a, a decision yet as an industry if there's going to be a standard. So we might as well just let you decide how you want to store that. Uh, Cosine and SigStore look like they're probably gathering momentum um, as a way to do artifact binary provenance. You know, GitHub has good support for it now in the OCI registries. Uh, I think that that's probably got some legs. Um, and I also think, like, we have to think about things from, uh, like, there's, there's, I think there's two problems in supply chain. There's the open source supply chain, which is how do you trust across trust boundaries. Like there's other people making software that you're blindly consuming. How do you how do you put some trust on that? And the way as an industry we seem to have arrived at is twofold. One is to let the maintainers sign their, their binaries. This is cosine six store. Yeah. And on the other side is that we're going to use scanners like Sneak and and so on to verify that as things go through our our internal supply chains that we're not deploying stuff with non vulnerabilities. I think that's all right, but I also think that that's not the same way to develop internally. Hmm. Um, because okay, cosine and sigstore make a lot of sense across trust boundaries because you're having to share basically a ledger across the the, the internet, and okay, that's fine. But 
by the same token, it's kind of unwieldy to use in your pipelines and and your things. So we, I think that there's a there's they're not the right tools to use for your internal supply chain. If that's where the where the where the industry ends up, that's fine for me. But I think that okay, I think it's useful at least to think about those as two very distinct supply chains. It might just being forced to do that for internal pipelines as well. Like just this week, I spent some time setting up the cosigning of the mm. bills for the macros because otherwise you just couldn't run them. Yeah, like there was like an internal tool that needs to be distributed so that people can use it, and they cannot use it if they can't run it. And the tool was the cap- had the capability and still has the capability of self upgrading, and that self upgrading just didn't work because you get a new binary. It's not signed by anyone. Apple doesn't know about it. And it just doesn't allow it to run. So we'll have to actually go and sign it. And, uh, set up the whole process of that. But the good thing is, I discovered there is a tool for people who are about to struggle with this. There is a tool called G-O-N, which is like GON, written by uh, Mikhail Hashimoto. Okay. So that kind of simplifies the whole thing. You just... Give it the HCL config, which is very straightforward. That integrates with GoReleaser. So that's like another popular open source tool for building and publishing Go releases. So if you haven't seen those two, as as I I didn't, mm. go, go check them out. They're great. Most of them. In general, though, I am very positive to like. The, the the way things are moving and and CICD and uh, su- supply chain. Um, I think Dagger is also quite interesting, and in the fact that okay, we probably haven't really f- solved CICD yet as a as a as an implementation. It's it's getting better and better, but I don't know if we've really progressed much in the last five or ten years beyond okay we can have our pipelines as code i think circle ci made a big step by saying and and travis and that generation says okay you don't have to have your own ci service that that was progress as well but we still have the problem that works on my machine Mm. works in ci like it is quite good to see that we can start to lock down the build environments, which again goes back to the salsa specification as well. Yeah. I, from from experience, I feel like you know we were talking about the difference between prod and and, and staging, and almost always it was um, security like credentials that were not correct, and mm-hmm. things blew up. And the error message is so cryptic because security, and th- this is really hard to like f- surface that like a- as an error. Like no, actually your credentials are not correct. Uh, <laughs> it's more like and some really cryptic error number with some incomprehensible words after uh, that, that uh, pop up. And I think like the th- there is a real. Uh, it's ripe for disruption in in that part. That yeah, actually we we need to embed security from the get go. But how do we present that, and how the user experience is is still very much uh, in like it, it's not it's not 
like production ready, I would say. It's a very, it's usually in house, some kind of uh, build, build tool to say, oh no, that's that error. I know what it is, but a new person coming in will never find out. And mm. then you have to go through the process of asking, can I please have access to that uh, thing? And, and the, re- the, the way to ask for that credential is usually not written anywhere. Or the, the, and if you buy, you know, sorry for those who have to open Jira ticket, maybe you get it this week, you know, and if mm. you look. So, so balancing security and speed is a really full-time job. I, I, I really, I really would love to have some tool like that that can help uh, alleviate the pain. Yeah. I was um, reading more about this. Uh, you know, the Knight Capital uh, bug that happened uh, ten years ago, where it was this um, automated trading platform that just went bananas and. Basically, it was selling high, uh, buying high and selling low uh, because it was running testing code in production. Now, there was, a, there was many root causes for this. It wasn't just that they were, well, why was it running uh, testing code in production? Well, one is that um, there, there was a, a config change that kind of was an outer band of change, right? This code, this testing code wasn't even used anymore but they reused that same config flag for other reasons in the code. And then the third thing is, okay, you've got dead code in the, the, the product. So you've got um, those three things are kind of like misaligned, misapplied config, dead code, and reuse of uh, config variables. Uh, they all came together to create that disaster, which was like $400 million or something. But there was another kind of cause that, that made this problem worse is that they didn't know what was running in production the devops team when they were rolling out the fix they missed one of the servers one of the one of the deployments failed and they were not running the code they thought they were running and it's like it's like there's no new problems in software we just keep discovering the same problems over and over again and the solution is always the same we need better understanding of what's actually going on yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I think monitoring is such uh, undervalued, underappreciated, and underrated uh, tool to have. It, it, it's hard too, you know. I, I'm not, it, but the the problem I see is that they treat that as a side project. You know, oh, monitoring is just that little thing that we may need in case of. Well, actually, it's not at all. It's really like the. It's like the insurance of the house. You, you when it's burning, it's too late. <laughs> so that that's really the where I think security and monitoring should very work well together, at least at the beginning, um, to, to resurface this problem. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah, that looks like an area that Mike is targeting. Sound like cross boundary between security and monitoring slash observability. Yeah, I mean, if we're successful at all, what we're going to do is try and build a bridge between the developers and what's going on and the actual systems, um, meeting the meeting the developers where they're at. Um, mm. And it's not easy. Um, and I mean, it's, this is why it's it's kind of fun as well. It's like, okay, we've had, we've talked about DevOps forever now. 
And still, we have platform teams that are separate from the developers, and the developers still don't really know what's on the other side of the wall. And like the monitoring solutions are set up for the operations team, not for the developers. So when it's time for debugging, the operators know exactly when things are going wrong, like mm-hmm. if memory's going haywire or the database isn't performing well. Uh, but if it's something developer-related, there's no kind of instrumentation there that actually helps the developers figure it out. True, so true. I, I feel really that uh, we, we talk about code, but actually like infrastructure is code, you know, configuration is code. But I, I feel it's going a little bit, um, at least that's my feeling, that it's going more like software, not, not like infrastructure as software, not really as code like YAML, you know, not a descriptive language, just really, mm. look, th- this is actually code with type checking, uh, you know, an ID support, some com- auto-completion and, and some tests even uh, that, that can help. So th- this is the trend I see. I don't know what you think about it. Uh, I agree. I mean, I think also going back to Diagar, I think this is what they're trying to do is to make CI platforms actual software that you can test. Um, uh, it's hard to get this stuff. I mean, if you, if you look at Terraform, Terraform is an extremely powerful tool, but like you can lint it, but there's not much you can do other than verify with your eyes what it's going to do with the plan before you, you press the button. Uh, there's no real way to put constraints on your expectations. There's no testing language for HCL. Um, so there, I mean, um, but not widely used. Right. right. But there are like test frameworks that you have for. So the, the the discussion I had about that is really talking with cloud providers, like directly engineer there. We were thinking like you know it's like a, com- a transaction in a database. You send a transaction, and when you press commit. Well, the, the data that you transact uh, are actually fully committed. And that's what you expect from infrastructure as code, which is actually not the case. On top of that, the feedback loop, it takes 15 minutes to spin up some services sometimes. Mm-hmm. You, you have so many times to context switch and forget what you were doing. And then you come back and see it failed and <laughs> things are burning. So, so you know, the, the user experience on that is, is really like demanding from from the user to get it right and this is where it, it it's not like a side project or something on the side it's actually the main core um, functionality of a team uh, especially platform team that deal with that day in day out so what do you see in terms of trend and how to solve those those issues because the problem the cloud provider have is that yeah but we are going to incur the cost of you calling our api and then committing so how do you charge for that and those kind of things. So what's your view on that? Well, I mean, isn't it the, like, what platform teams are doing is the same thing that Heroku and systems like this are trying to do, Netlify at different levels. Like, for a lot of software systems, we're trying to kind of operate at a layer so we don't have to care about all that stuff below. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel that in many cases, a lot of this should not be a concern of a, of a software development team. If you want to run a, a web service uh, and it looks pretty ordinary, it's really good if you can get if you can make the operation side of the, the, the story a service that you can 
uh, you can not have to think about like if you're thinking about VPCs and allocating storage and networking and so on, you need experts that can understand when things go wrong and how they don't go. It, it's almost it's very much better to to have that uh, like from a company that 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 is their expertise. Mm-hmm. Where I find companies go really wrong is to try and build their own platforms internally and you're like okay you've got a team that maybe knows the cloud quite well but it's not ever going to be as good an abstraction as it needs to be Uh, so there'll be all of that and then the developers will be expected to debug into a platform they have no knowledge of like you would never have to debug into a heroku and understand how the networking or the storage or the database or the load balancer is set up. But that's quite common in the typical development environments we see these days. Mm, true, so true. I, I really, I totally agree with that view. What about you, Andre? Yeah, don't build your own platform. <laughs> so, sounds like a good advice uh, to start with. Mm. All right, so with that... I think we could be moving towards the closure. Any last question, Julian? No, oh, I, I, I think I, I, I cooked uh, Mike quite well <laughs> with all my <laughs> questions. <laughs> it was very uh, specific, but uh, it's it's nice to have different, you know, to have someone to have a different perspective on things from a different angle. It's always uh, I find I always learn a lot from people with different views. So I'm, I'm yeah. happy for that. Yeah, with that, Mike, thank you for bringing a different view. To Thanks again. for having me. As, again, as I said, we are kind of deep into the infrastructure. It's called security container, all that stuff. And we are not really touching the area where you are an expert. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really good to... Look at it, and uh, uh, yeah. So with this, we say thanks to everyone. Uh, all the links we mentioned they will be in, uh, in the show notes, and uh, we hear each other soon. Thank you. Bye bye. been listening to the DevSecOps podcast with Matthias Andre and Julian. For more podcast and notes go to the webpage devsecops.fm. Thanks for tuning in.